Welcome everybody to this very special 5 by 15 event this evening. And first up, I wanted to say a huge thank you to Penguin Books who have helped us very much in making this program possible. Um, it's an honor to have groundbreaking authors with us this evening to discuss the theme of coalition building. And let me quickly introduce our speakers just before we get started and in particular their books. So Sean Fay is author of The Transgender Issue, a landmark work and an instant Sunday Times bestseller. And it's a call for justice, for solidarity between all marginalized people and minorities. And also joining us this evening, we have Emma Dabbery, an author and academic and broadcaster. Her essay, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, came out this year and draws on years of research and personal experience to challenge and create meaningful lasting change about how we talk about racial injustice. Books as ever are available from you and Bookshop, our book partner and details will be in the chat. And our chair this evening is Ellie Mae O'Hagan, the director of class, and she's been a writer and broadcaster for 10 years. So please don't forget to put your questions in the Q&A box. And I know Ellie will try to come to as many as she can towards the end of this session. But for now, I will hand over to Ellie and say a warm welcome. Thank you all so much for being with us and over to you. Thanks, Daisy, and welcome, everybody. Uh, it's rare for me to jump at the chance to do an event. Um, I'm usually quite bad at replying to emails, but I replied to the invitation to this one within 10 seconds because there are only three books that I think I've read in the last 10 years that have uh, really had a profound uh, impact on my politics to the point where I feel like I, I um, crystallised my thoughts or changed my mind completely. And the authors of two of them are on this panel. Um, so it's an absolute pleasure to, um, to be presenting this event with uh, two women who I really, really admire and respect and have learned a lot from. So I will introduce them to you. So Sean Fay is an author, a broadcaster. She's a Sunday Times bestselling author. And she was recently uh, commemorated, is that the word? Or is that only when people die? Um, celebrated at Trinity College in Dublin for her outstanding contribution uh, to public discourse. And Emma Debiri is, uh, she, uh, one of her documentaries, sorry, let me start again, I got ahead of myself. She's an author and broadcaster also, and one of her documentaries uh, recently won a Silver Lion at Cannes Film Festival, if you can believe it. She's also a Sunday Times and an Irish Times bestseller. Um, welcome, both of you. Uh, so this is an event about um, coalition building, and I am especially pleased to um, be chairing this event because the organisation that I run, CLASS, is doing a very long year-long project about uh, how we build a coalition to sort of fundamentally change the political landscape of this culture and it's, it, this country. And it's called the Race Class Narrative Project, and it's based on a project that was done in the US to great success. And what the Race Class Narrative Project has found is that this government is using uh, race and wokeness and culture wars in order to divide the working class um, from one another, to convince the working class that, that their enemy is their uh, neighbour who might be a person of colour or a person, someone who moved here from another country. Or, you know, in the case of this country, someone who is trans, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that um in the in this upcoming discussion so it's really relevant to what i'm working on so i'm really pleased to be here and before i ask my first question because what i'm going to do is just going to start a conversation by asking um sean and emma some to give me their thoughts on some things um it would be remiss of me if i didn't um shout out to the rally happening at parliament at the moment about the health and social care bill um because a massive coalition is it something that we all care about can be built around healthcare because our health is important everyone's health is important and 95 percent of us can't afford private health care um, the health and social care bill is a huge leap forward in the decade-long process of uh privatizing the nhs it will break the nhs into 42 parts um, and each part will be run by a board where pub, uh, private companies will be allowed to sit on. And the uh, number of people from local authorities who are allowed to sit on those boards is limited, but the number of people from private healthcare companies 
who are allowed to sit on those boards is unlimited. That means that they will have a say over who, who gets care and how much is spent. Um, and this will also increase the already worrying process of American healthcare companies buying out our GP surgeries. Um, so please go to yournhsneedsyou.com and you will see a series of actions you can take uh, to oppose this bill. So uh, I'll leave it there. So um, Emma and Sean, uh, my first question is, so a lot of people are aware of um, the issues that you talk about, race and trans rights, um, but what I have noticed is that in moments where these uh, issues sort of come to the surface a bit more, so for example, during the Black Lives Matter protests or um, during Trans Awareness Week, for example, uh, what I will come across a lot on things like Instagram are people sharing like pictures or slideshows of saying, you know, 10 tips to be a good ally or like how to respond if someone, if you get called out or something like that. And it strikes me that what, you have worked on and what you advocate is actually a very different form of politics to that and I sometimes think that the people who talk about your work maybe don't um, appreciate the extent to which these are two different sort of strands of thinking so I was wondering if you could um, enlighten us by basically talking about uh, why like, what differs your outlook and your sort of theory of change if you like from that kind of activism uh, and I guess, Sean, do you want to take that one first? Uh, okay, yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I feel actually like Emma writes about this more explicitly in What White People Can Do Next. But I would say um, what differs for me about that, I mean, in terms of like the, like the term allyship, if we start there, is my experience of that was um, working in the kind of NGO LGBT plus charity sector where um, this term ally as a noun in particular, rather than thinking about um, actions and behaviors has become kind of reified into this quite corporate way of thinking about it, which is um, about allowing people who aren't part of a particular group um, to regard themselves as allies and even corporations. So, I mean, in the LGBT sector now, it's actually quite common to get like awards for best corporate ally, for example. Um, and so that that's kind of the heart of the problem, like a corporation as the idea that a corporation can be your ally, a sort of like, a, you know, a thing that only really exists to make money for its shareholder is now your ally. Um, and really, I guess the issue there is that I think there are actions in allegiance. And obviously the that is what the word was intended to express. But for me, um, it now kind of means somewhat of a patronizing condescension um, of the idea that people from a position of power can come down and kind of essentially um, act in a kind of savior role um, for a particular minority group in, you know, in the case of what I write about trans people. Um, and I don't know, there's, there can be, I think some people use the word ally. I don't mean to criticize anyone that uses that. Um, that term about themselves, if that's particularly the language that they've been introduced to trying to support or stand with, um, with trans people in particular. But I think there is uh, a way that it can be marketed and sold as quite a self-regarding title um, that you can sort of self-designate yourself as an ally. It comes from a place of benevolence. Um, it means you're a good person. Everyone feels lovely. And then obviously, outside of the corporate sphere where you talked about the Instagram infographics, I see that as an extension out of this kind of corporate diversity and inclusion model, um, which has really pushed the idea of being trained and being the ally. It's sort of like a self-improvement narrative is that obviously as so many things on Instagram is that that's still kind of selling this to us now in our private sphere, which is, oh, I'm a white person, Black Lives Matter is resurging across the world as it was last year, last summer. And I don't know what to say or what to do. So there's a sort of sense of, oh, I don't know, like this industriousness of producing infographics and sharing infographics to make you feel um, like you participate in this kind of positive feeling of being an ally. Um, and I feel like I've spoken enough, but where my politics differs from that is really it's about the condescension aspect, particularly um, with 
trans people, we're such a small group that that kind of fair weather dependence really grates on me on a personal level. The idea that I'm constantly sat around waiting for people to come and help me, like gay men to come and help me, or like, you know, cisgender women, cisgender feminists to come and help me. Um, and for me, it's more about looking at the kind of macro level is actually there's lots going on beyond um, transphobia in society. And as you mentioned just there about healthcare, about bodily autonomy, about these big questions of the state and the state's role to intrude in our lives. There's lots of things that are affecting other people. Um, and it's more about, I'm more about thinking about joined up thinking in terms of resisting that than I am about being aided. Um, and I'll leave that there to let Emma speak. <laughs> Emma? Yeah, thank you. Like, I, I, I would echo so strongly, you know, so much of um, what Sean has just said. And wow, <laughs> that's so unusual on a panel. We need to do more panels together. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like just to maybe pick up um, a little further on to expand on some of those points. Um, well, first of all, just to, to reiterate, actually, um, that idea of kind of atomizing um, our issues and not looking at kind of bigger, bigger picture, um, bigger picture problems that we have, that we should be, you know, kind of focused on working in solidarity towards overcoming, rather than these kind of like more um, micro and, and, and or more micro and atomized approaches, um, I would totally, um, I think that's so important. And I think my work tries to connect the dots between um, different struggles that seem to be kind of presented as, or just not even spoken about in the same kind of within the same um, discourses, even though they are intimately, intimately interconnected. Um, but also that notion or that kind of central tenant of the of the kind of ally identity which is that I think Sean mentioned the word patronizing um, and savior and this notion certainly when we're thinking about race like we think about the dynamics that exist between black and white um, the 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 from the construction you know of race from the invention of the idea of a white race and subsequently a black race from its earliest inception, you know, whiteness is um, encoded with this sense of, um, of superiority and blackness with inferiority. And I think so much of the allyship, sorry, I can hear one of my children screaming, which is slightly distracting. Um, I think so much of the allyship discourse um, reinforces that power dynamic and um, it is this very, it, it doesn't, it, it fails to, I think in terms of anti-racism, a lot of the allyship dynamic fails to really interrogate, um, interrogate the way that people who are ra racialized as white, many, many people, probably most people who are racialized as white, also, you know, suffer or experience, they don't experience racism, of course, but they, ex they, they experience diminished life opportunities as the result of the inequalities perpetuated by capitalism. And I think the white allyship narrative like fails to address that, and that would be the building block of creating kind of coalitions between black and white. It fails to address that. And it kind of presents whiteness as this, um, yeah, like, sorry, it, it, fails, it, it fails to address that. And it acts as though a white person being involved in these struggles would be somebody who is kind of, you know, doing a favor or is being charitable or benevolent in some way. And um, yeah, just kind of reinforces white savior dynamics. And I also think um, a lot of the discourse around it, I just find really frustrating. You know, you hear this kind of, oh no, sorry, before I get to that, and just very quickly, you, um, what is it? Um, yeah, you hear this, um, sorry, the advice for the, for the potential allies um, often is, and this is something I write about in the book, is like, do not expect to be taught or shown. 
and that Google is your friend. So I took that advice. Um, I kind of imagined that in the writing of the book and the researching of what white people can do next, I took that advice and I Googled allyship. And a lot of the literature that came up in terms of anti-racist allyship, you know, was talking about using very explicitly the language of the ally and the victim um, and talking about, so again, you know, kind of reinforcing that white savior idea. And then also some of the, something I saw referred to that I reference in the book is this idea that um, the allies needs are always secondary. So it's this notion of sacrifice and, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, kind of self-flagellation in a way and I'm like who is that appealing to what kind of personality is that appealing to and I was like that so people that would be aroused by that would be people that have kind of white savior type tendencies um so I just think the way it frames everything is um you know that the framing is distorted the framing is wrong for me that was more rambling than I had intended the screaming was distracting <laughs> um so uh, I, I gave you a rundown of things I was going to ask you, but I'm going to spring one on you now, which is, um, and also, by the way, if either of you want to just chip in on the other one, feel free. But like, um, so I wanted to ask then, uh, in that case, um, with given like the criticisms that you both have made of allyship, how do we move past uh, racism and misogyny and transphobia? being a series of interpersonal relations and start seeing it as something more structural. Uh, Sean, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you have sprung that. I'm like, because that's a bit, that's a big question. I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think where I look, I mean, in, in the research for the book, I mean, history, I mean, the history is full of examples of that. So like as someone that's like a history nerd, I think it's, um, interesting to look at former political coalitions and where they worked. And I think, yeah, effective political coalitions, particularly between oppressed groups, marginalized groups or minority groups, you know, I think, I think it's really um, key that this isn't, yeah, this isn't, a, like Emma said, the kind of savior victim dynamic. Often these things are really, really difficult forms of coalition where these people are, are come from quite a different place and there isn't going to be completely mutual understanding. I think you have to kind of lose that idea. And I think that kind of social media, Twitter idea um, that, that makes people freeze as well, because obviously some people get very invested in this ally narrative. But other people feel completely alienated by it. That the fact that they're so afraid, I know this with trans stuff, right? Like people are so afraid of saying something wrong that they actually don't do anything. And there has to be space for um, a pragmatism that is like, you can't really understand my interior experience and you can't understand what it's like to exist in this society, in this body. Um, but also you don't really have to. Um, you have to just understand the material needs that I have, that you probably have, particularly if we're both, even for different reasons, having them. So, um, I don't know if you if you want like a historical example or if it like, I mean, I could I could provide one. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to come to that next, but we could just uh, get we could combine the two together and uh, you can. Yeah, go go for it. Yeah. Well, for example, like here's a really classic example is that the is is between like gay liberation campaigners, which include included trans people in the US. Um, at the start of the gay liberation movement, obviously um, the Black Panther Party, uh, Huey Newton, um, you know, gave a speech basically saying that you know the gay liberation front and the women's liberation movement should be allies of the Black liberation movement. It's quite like, and uh, he gives a speech in like 1970 where he says we should be careful about using those terms that might turn our friends off. The terms faggot and punk should be deleted from our vocabulary, and especially we should not attach names normally designed for homosexuals um, to men who are enemies of the people, such as Nixon. H homosexuals are not enemies of the people. And um, and I think, you know, like, <laughs> imagine someone tweeting that. <laughs> but the, the point I think there is if you, even the tone, the language, right, is that he's speaking perhaps to an audience of people who um, perhaps were using homophobic terms and you wouldn't be saying it if they weren't. But the purpose there is, is there is a pragmatism to it. It's that this is, you do not have to fully understand or even, you know, for religious reasons, whatever, understand necessarily every aspect of like 
gay life or gay liberation, but these people are being oppressed in the same way and we're forming a political allegiance with them. Therefore, it's necessary in that example to, re to restrict use of alienating terms that we like choose to use language that's mutually intelligible because we don't want to like offend and you know it, it's a pragmatic idea and some people would say yeah but I want on a personal level that I want someone not to use this slur against me because it's wrong not because it suits their goals but I don't think that works <laughs> in terms of building broad coalitions um frankly like I can't I would I would love everyone to have a full sensitivity and a deep interest in my experience as a trans woman but like that you know in Britain for example in the context in which we're operating now that's not the case there's not going to be never enough diversity and inclusion trainings and people engaging with them for that to be the case so we have to think more pragmatically about you don't have to understand this perhaps you could like restrain you know choosing not to use language that might be hurtful but with the end goal of, for example, if universal credit is being cut, that will disproportionately affect trans people. So will it disproportionately affect, I don't know, um, yeah, racialized people who are more likely to be working in lower pay precarious roles or um, are more likely to experience homelessness, for example. I'm gonna let Emma speak now because I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, um, that was brilliant, thank you. And I think that's often what's lacking what seems to be absent in so much of the current discourse that one sees online. And I think so much of the discourse that's online, like also migrates offline, you know, and um, starts to inform um, the way the kind of anti, the way anti-racism is, is understood, but it seems to often lack clear or certainly collective objectives and to exist perhaps more on the level of um yeah interpersonal interpersonal exchange and perhaps even you know personal personal advancement and i think because clearly identifiable objectives are often unstated or unknown um a lot of the attempts that we're seeing are just not you know there's not strategic they're not pragmatic to again reference like and so many of the answers so many so many examples are there in the very recent historical record you know so again to draw on the panthers another example that i use that i use in the book that um i know i think is becoming increasingly commonly known but certainly lots of people had said to me they had they, they had never heard of heard about this was the um the original rainbow coalition where fred hampton of the the leader of the chicago chapter of the black panthers created a coalition com comprised of the black panthers a puerto rican former gang called the young lords and a southern white working class gang called the Young Patriots. And I think the coalition with the Young Patriots is like particularly interesting in terms of pragmatism and um, attempts to be strategic to um, achieve collective, collective objectives um, in that the Young Patriots had the Confederate flag. So the Confederate flag being, you know, the symbol of the slave owning South, um, a particularly loaded and charged, you know, kind of a white supremacist symbol, right? This was that this was this was their symbol, this was their marker. And Hampton was extremely pragmatic in saying, you know, obviously, like I doubt he felt comfortable, you know, with that, but he's saying if we can use it, if we can use it to work with these people to achieve our goals, which benefit us all, um, then let's do it. And I think what's really one of the things, one of the many things that's so interesting about that example is that the young patriots then themselves renounced the flag. So rather than being, you know, called out or canceled or harangued in some way, they themselves through working with the Panthers actually renounced the flag. And I think that type of change is far more, that type of reflection, you know, where the change kind of comes in that way, feels like it would be a lot less performative 
than change that comes from, you know, fear of public shaming or being called out online, you know? Um, sorry if I vanished there for a moment. My internet died, which has never happened before in the whole like two years of COVID. So I'm glad you all got to witness that. Um, so I guess I was wondering, um, and we're also uh, just want to say that we're halfway through. So um, please do remember to stick your questions in the chat. And I might actually come from a bit early because we already have some and they're really good. Um, I was wondering then, um, you've both written books uh, within a year of one another, right? Uh, that advocate for coalition building. And I was wondering it, um, what inspired you uh, to write those books? And was it anything to do with the moment that, that we're in? Um, and maybe I, I felt a bit bad going to um, Emma first because you just spoke, but I also feel like I feel bad going to Sean first all the time because she has to think on her feet a bit more. So maybe Emma this time, if that's okay. Let's mix it up, yeah. <laughs> Spirit of fairness. Um, so mine was unequivocally very, very much born of the moment. Um, I had never um, felt particularly inclined to write about allyship, to talk about allyship in any expanded way. I'd been asked actually many times, but I really didn't feel it was where my energy was 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 best served, um, being focused in that space. However, um, in the kind of aftermath of the murder of Floyd George and the level of um, the volume of uh, conversation about allyship and the multiple frustrations I felt about the way the conversations were being framed and the, the, the again, frustration I think I felt at what was I felt like we had this historic opportunity or we'd created, you know, this historic opportunity circumstances and created this historic opportunity and maybe its potential was being squandered by um, an anti-racist narrative that actually reproduced or reinforced um, the, some of the problems that it seeks to, that it seeks to overcome, such as a kind of immutable difference between black and white and a further reification of the very racial categories that were invented in order to create racism, um, which was created for a number of reasons. One, the architecture of race, you know, that we live with today has its roots in, and the, the idea of a white race and a black race has its roots, roots in um, the, it's created in the 17th century in, um, the colonial Caribbean and what will become the United States. And um, part of it is to, it, from its earliest inception, you know, this idea that the people who become racialized as white have this inherent superiority to the people who become racialized as black. And that's used to justify the transatlantic slave trade, which is necessary because of the huge wealth that it is, um, that, that it is generating in this period. Um, so the, idea of a white race and a black race does that work very effectively it also shuts down the coalitions that are emerging between um indentured european laborers and um and enslaved africans or it at the, at the very beginning of the kidnapping of africans there's it's actually before slavery becomes entrenched um some some are actually indentured laborers in the very very early early periods but race, the narrative of race and the codification of race um, uh, creates this immutable difference between those groups um, and prevents these coalitions that had been emerging where the two groups were seeing uh, European landlords as their common enemy. And there were a number of, of, of rebellions. But what a lot of the current anti-racist narrative seemed to be doing was actually further reif reifying race when we should be at the very least um, you know, really thinking about how we can lessen the, how we can kind of like eventually like dissolve um, these categories. Um, so yeah, mine was born out of a fr frustration and a fear that we were squandering opportunity. Sean? Uh, yeah, so I guess on a, yeah, writing my book, I think it was because uh, I had seen this growth of like, 
so-called trans visibility in the you know surge of it in the 2010s that decade and I think there was a growing kind of liberal hope that um, trans people would re achieve some kind of like undefined equality in a kind of similar manner to the way that perhaps uh, most cis LGB people did just like we were on a 20 year time lag but people society would just wake up which is a kind of collective amnesia about uh, how um, so, yeah, sexuality and sexual diversity came to be more widely accepted anyway, and the costs of that. Um, so there was this kind of, yeah, this assumption that visibility, representation, you know, and culture in the arts would somehow trickle down and, and help us, and that society just wouldn't mind. Um, so, so there was that um, aspect of it, and that had clearly failed, right? Like, <laughs> if anything, we were moving to, we were lurching towards, especially as I was really in the, um, thick of writing the first draft, um, you know, Boris Johnson had become, we'd seen the most homophobic and overtly transphobic government for, for decades, pretty much since Thatcher. And so this, this kind of hope of somehow visibility and winning acceptance purely by cultural representation wasn't going to work. Um, and so it's like, well, what is going to work? And one of the huge difficulties for trans people is we're less than 1% of the population. So in terms of, um, writing about coalition, it was absolutely necessary that like, we aren't going to be able to liberate ourselves anyway, like that, what would that even look like? But, you know, just on a purely pragmatic level, on some level, I knew I had to <laughs> write about the LGBT coalition, which in and of itself, you know, is, is it's not a self-contained group. It's, it's itself a strategic coalition because there is a huge difference between um, many people's experiences under that kind of under that label, under that umbrella. Um, so I knew I was going to have to expand upon that because one of the main ways that transphobia has manifested uh, in the British media is the idea that trans people are a threat to lesbians, to gay men, to, to bi people, to a lesser extent, they kind of tend to forget about bi people. So having to kind of reassert like LGBT, again, this atomization of identity that like people are encouraged now to be like, well, I am, you know, this is my gender, this is my sexuality, this kind of like, these are the labels I feel comfortable with. So yeah, that's all fine. And that could be really different to someone else who's also LGBT, but this exists and always has existed as political coalition. Um, and that's where it's most effective. And that's why it's, you're encouraged, the infighting is encouraged by the media is because they want to break up that coalition because it's been quite effective in, in some ways. Um, historically and currently and then like also yeah it's just like how to make people care like trans people have always um, experienced this alienation estrangement where we're made to to be seen as this complex difficult thing that people don't really understand and I felt that was an inhibition to actually people forming coalitions with us or people understanding us or standing in solidarity with us and so for example how do you make people care about the desperate healthcare crisis like the media doesn't report on it it's relatively small numbers of the population. This won't touch most people. So if you say, oh, this is a six year waiting list for the gender identity clinic, like how many people, unless they have a trans person in their life are really gonna care about that? So then you have to start to think about well, what is this about? This is about bodily autonomy. There's links there to like, reproductive rights for all, anyone with a uterus, but you know, majoritively cisgender women. Um, you can think about like healthcare inequality and discrimination. I mean that obviously is something that affects people of color more than it does white people, women than it does more than men. And so like, there are suddenly all these links if you start to make it around these broader ideas where you can actually make it relevant to people to be like, well, actually it's quite paternalistic and patriarchal that governments and doctors can take this healthcare away or just let you languish for years. And we're not the only group they do this to. And then you hope that someone who's reading it who has no experience with the trans thing um, will be like, you know, we, I know that the outcomes are worse for me as a black woman, or I know that like as a disabled person living with a chronic illness, you know, I'm wait, languishing on waiting lists for years. And it, it speaks again to that idea that allyship is that trans people can sometimes be painted as this like vulnerable mousy little group who we should all pity, um, but are lar largely defenseless. Um, and actually that's both that that's there's an inertia around that too because it encourages this like trans rights are human rights poor trans people but there's an inertia there because it's like oh we're, there's nothing you can really do to help them and so well, actually yes there is and if I make that seem relevant to you about how it might be connected to your own struggle you might be more incentivized to think about 
that kind of coalition. So I guess that was what was going through my head. And I would say as well of the moment, um, I wrote the vast majority of the first draft in the first lockdown and actually uh, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter last June happened between the two drafts. And that combined with the pandemic starting as I was writing it too, which we forget how apocalyptic uh, the first lockdown really felt. I think that kind of furthered me on because there was a more of a tepid liberal apologia I could have written and was probably flirting within the back of my mind. But when that like is all happening in the world, you just like it kind of just felt like a reinforcement that now is not the time um, when people are challenging things like carceral justice. Um, then it's not the time to be kind of squeamish. And I'm glad I didn't because uh, the climate crisis is a disaster. So um, now is not really the time for kind of squeamish, slightly assimilationist arguments, I think. Uh, well, as you've both been talking, I've uh, gone drunk with power as chair and um, I've decided to throw out the schedule uh, and go straight to questions because uh, they're really good. Um, and I've also decided to use my uh, mighty power as chair to say that I think that uh, the establishment doesn't like talking about what you were just talking about, Sean, because actually what is best for all people, and especially people who are people of colour or trans or, or women, is a radical changing of society and a redistribution of wealth and power. And I think that's why we're not talking about it. But I would say that. Um, so the first question that I'm going to ask you is, uh, how do you both feel about the concept of privilege, privilege person has done that, um, as it's used today in political discourse? Is it a helpful concept? I can I can respond to that. Um, so when I first became um, aware of privilege um, discourse, it was probably around 2011 or so, 2010, sometime like that. And I was just like, oh, this is great. Like this really gives a name. I think I'd sp spoken about like kind of this luxury that white pe people who are racialized as white have of like moving through the world. Might've even said privilege, you know, moving through the world as unracialized, you know, moving through the world just as um, the, the, the default norm from which everyone else deviates. Um, so when I came across the kind of like privilege discourse as um, conceived of by Peggy McIntosh in I think 1989 when she wrote a list unpacking the invisible knapsack and she's a white woman a white um feminist uh American scholar um I was like oh this is great this is really naming that thing and giving like the language and as it started to come more into popular discourse and people started to be more familiar with it there was just like this thing was being named and like addressed and I, I, I was enthusiastic about it over the years I saw it kind of become you know quite untethered from that application and just becoming you know, the types of privileges, you know, were just, you know, also being, you know, like salami sliced and everything, all, all of these conversations, you know, that ne need to be equally, if not more so, about um, the redistribution of wealth and power, that aspect was being, you know, kind of overlooked. And so much of the discourse was just being grounded, particularly, particularly, you know, online. Because again, this is a concept that was originally, first of all, kind of more just in the academy and maybe amongst, um, you know, activists, activists before activism had become this kind of social media phenomenon. So kind of more like grassroots. But as it became, you know, as it kind of as privilege kind of became like big business it kind of took up all this interpersonal privilege took up all of the bandwidth and it was like in terms of anti-racism there was little um anti-racist discourse mainstream anti-racist discourse there seemed to be little attention given to connecting dots the 
bigger picture and the way we need to be, you know, thinking about capitalism, about class and about the redistribution of wealth and resources. They seem to be getting kind of those concerns were sidelined, seemingly sidelined um, with this concern on, on people kind of accusations and denials of, of forms of interpersonal privilege, which, um, you know, is a space in which the kind of change that needs to happen can could can never occur on that individual level. So in a way, it's kind of a highway to nowhere. It may serve some sort of, um, you know, it, it can be kind of gratifying um, on a on, on a personal level and there's there can be a necessity for it but I, it was almost like that hijacked everything else also to just say very quickly as well um scholars like barbara fields and i talk about this in what white people could do next say that um you know narratives around it's not to say white privilege doesn't exist okay but it is to say that if we want to create mass movements that are so they're so powerful you know that um their demands cannot be ignored and we want to be strategic in what it is that we want to achieve and what our objectives are it's not about placating people and not being truthful it's not it's, it's not about that just giving people these kind of you know um kind of softly softly um uh, narratives so that they can so they can feel so they can feel included but it is about kind of effective and strategic narrative and if you have um a kind of an overemphasis on a story that says well your life is just this one of unmitigated you know privilege and ease how do you draw and you can't really say anything or contribute to this conversation but at the same time silence is violence so there's kind of a, there is an inherent kind of contradiction there but how do you draw people in how do you identify how do you let people identify that it is actually in their best interest to be working side by side with you because there are ways that they are also oppressed and exploited that were everybody to work together, we might have more success in changing. So I will stop there. John, do, do you want to add anything? Um, I mean, yeah, I would echo a lot of that. I think in the context of gender, there's real um, sticking points there. I do, privilege is a difficult thing to talk about with gender because I realize that this is like one of the huge sticking points, for example, for uh, certainly like and uh, gender critical feminists or like particularly ra actual radical feminists, I think from the 70s and their issues with some trans discourses, it was being presented certainly like, yeah, when I was first becoming aware of it, sort of like maybe like five to 10 years ago was this idea of cis privilege. And it just seemed to be like a red rag to a bull because basically I think a lot of cisgender women felt that like, a gender system that's designed their gender is constructed to be you know like inferior to men and they had suffered a lot from that the idea that people particularly trans women who they believe had moved from the kind of dominant class um and were attempting to infiltrate their class like it it really was like a red rag to a bull that like they might have privilege um in in a gender system um as women and and so like you know, I think I, I was trying to think creatively around around that because it, it just seemed to be an issue. But also, um, yeah, I, I think the other thing to say is that, yeah, for trans women, too, is that obviously some some schools of feminist thought have this idea of like an indelible male privilege, which is which is used against trans women that we cannot like we retain this kind of mystical um, indelible male privilege regardless of how our social position might change or indeed how we might have been socialized as gender non-conforming even before transition. And so this privilege model doesn't fit like for me. And for me, it's very much, I think less about, it's less helpful for me to think about privilege and more about power and power can shift contextually. So like a very simple example would be that like, well, firstly, like 99.4% of the population is cisgender. Therefore, there is a certain collective power that cisgender people may have in building the world in which I live, you know, like as a trans person in terms of lots of contexts. And then, for example, like, you know, rather than saying all oh, cisgender women have privilege over me, what I might say is 
a psychiatrist who can psychiatrically assess me to decide whether or not I get um, certain medical treatment could be a cisgender woman. It's, it's never going to be a trans woman. <laughs> it just isn't. That's that's not how trans healthcare is set up. So in that context, she does have power over me. And of course, she that you know you might say look to the wider profession of psychiatry and say it was a very male dominated profession. But generally, it's a cisgender profession. It's a cisgender male profession. But in that context, she has the backing of that profession in, over and has a certain degree of dominion over my life and my body. Similarly, like a group of female MPs who are cisgender would you know in that context so I think for me power and how it's exercised and in whose interests is more relevant a question than privilege especially when it comes to like to gender um we have a question which uh I feel like is quite relevant to the current moment um let me see if I can find it I just lost it um who the hell really cares what celebrities think? Uh, do we all care too much about what individual celebrity celebrities think when it's the structural things that are the problem? So I'm, I guess like I'll rephrase that as in um, what role, if any, do celebrities have in this? And are they a distraction or overshadowing uh, the sort of core work that needs to be done? Um, I can I can start with that if we're doing that flip. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I certainly think they can. I think the sort of disproportionate focus on them again is symptomatic of this like social media, Twitter commentary, where it's like day by day, and certainly like it. I find it frustrating. For example, um, yeah, like let me talk on the trans side as like a, a discourse I'm part of, and then I'll, I'll give another example. But like, for example, the disproportionate focus on like the author of Harry Potter, right? Like that, I, I find the fact that even the fact that seeing signs at protests about that person, about her, like about her or about, you know, her work or whatever it's like, but she's not, you know, she may have views that are objectionable um, to people who are interested in trans rights, but like really she, it's frustrating when the conversation locks on that. And I found like when I've been doing publicity around this book, you know, especially the more mainstream I go and out of kind of more left-wing media, people want to ask me about her and that's a self-fulfilling narrative. And it's like, well, I'm here to talk about, you know, like the healthcare inequality, the fact that it's like three to six years waiting lists on the NHS with no chance of that being brought down. Um, and I think that is partly because of celebrity culture. And then I was going to give an example, like I think when I was perhaps, you know, at the same time, I do think that celebrities can be useful examples, probably a lot of like, you know my understanding of like how racial racialized misogyny works against women of color and particularly black women perhaps was people tweeting about Beyonce like circa 2014 do you know what I mean like I think it's I'm sure, I'm sure it's fine as like an entry level thing um and it's a lens to view these things but like you know it's interesting with celebrities when we focus on them so much is that like <laughs> They, they also have a class position and it typically, it typically is an extremely actually privileged wealthy one. So any kind of examples that they might be being used um, to demonstrate, you know, as an example of a phenomena like racism or, tra or transphobia or whatever, um, to me, it's much, it's always going to be limited because it's going to limit itself to the identity and not to the person's class position, which when we're talking about celebrities is automatically going to be better than most of ours, if that makes sense. So yeah, I basically to, to, to round that off, I think there is a disproportionate focus on them, um, both as examples, um, teachable examples, and also as, um, I don't know, focuses of outrage. Yeah, and I think it's also because we have this obsession with platforms, you know, and um, so many of these conver conversations are happening via, you know, platform, platform capitalism on these sites. And so the more, the bigger your platform and the more followers you have, which obviously celebrities um, are going to have a distinct kind of advantage um, with, um, that 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 equates to some form of you know worth or 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 expertise. So what they have to say about topics that they might actually have like quite limited understanding of is given this very elevated importance because of their platform. 
And then also sometimes the idea that um, people are, um, you know, only engaged in these conversations because now, or not only, but perhaps, you know, partially motivated to engage in these conversations at this moment in a cynical way because it's seen as a way of building one's platform and perhaps entering the sphere of celebrity oneself. Um, so yeah, I think the whole question around celebrities is very pertinent and yeah, interesting. Um, thank you. I actually know somebody whose mum is a sort of uh, kind of home counties kind of type, not political at all, who's become very, very enthusiastic about Black Lives Matter because she loves Formula One um, and Lewis Hamilton talks about Black Lives Matter. She has uh, T-shirts now about Black Lives Matter. Um, is, she, is she an anti-racist influence in it? No, no, no. <laughs> She's just my friend's mum. Okay. <laughs> um, this is a good one. Uh, how much should we be careful not to use shorthand terms when trying to build coalitions with others? Um, I think what this person means is sort of activist jargon, uh, maybe. Um, how much should our energy be put towards first making sure that two groups speak or at least understand each other's languages? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, certainly to a degree, I think, you know, it, dep it depends where, yeah, I mean, I, I think code switching is part of campaigning and activism anyway. I think you have to meet people where they're at. Um, and I do think language can become a barrier at times. I mean, like, you know, I've had this before. I've had like people who are living in London, like, you know, trans queer people, etc., living in like London in all trans queer commune houses, whatever, and can be quite strident about you know, I can't believe people are still saying this in 2021, but like, for example, when I worked for Stonewall, we were doing like, I don't know, aware, yeah, trans training for like GPs receptionists. And, you know, at this point you were having to tell people the very basics of this is, actually this is kind of a transphobic thing to say because they had no clue. Um, and and I don't know, I feel like you have to be able to speak to both, both sides with that. And I think there is a, you know, I think, oh, again, it's like Huey Newton example I gave about the like, so like we don't use this word. It's that the ideal is, is it's not that you have to have, not every person is gonna need to have a fully theorized intellectual understanding of like, for example, why you say assigned male at birth instead of born male. You know, it's, there is a point where you have to kind of accept people's intentions. And then, yeah, you have to just, go with mutually agreed upon language um you know that and and that and that's to be negotiated and i mean that's the thing about why organizing i guess alongside people as opposed to we've we've really dissed the internet and social media in this session but like these things evolve naturally when you actually work with people side by side i think in real life i mean human beings are naturally given towards that mutual understanding and kind of meeting somewhere in the middle in terms of language and like you know, I'd prefer if you didn't say this or like actually I'd describe myself this way. You know, I think Twitter, for example, and um, and again, this like marketization of it, of training that you need to be given a glossary of terms to use. I mean, that's that's partly partly the sort of like part of the diversity and inclusion ally industry is here's a body of knowledge. We're going to sell you it because you don't know what to do and you're going to probably get yourself fired. Um, and of course, like actual organizing grassroots movements don't work that way. I don't know if that answers the question, but like, if it does, if it doesn't, luckily Emma can fill in the gaps. But one of the things that I was very frustrated by, um, that you know, actually like inspired, um, inspired the book was actually just these mantras, just these stock phrases that I was hearing like repeated again and again and I felt you know oh man I felt like I roll when I'd hear them and I'm like I'm sure if I feel like this there's probably lots of other people as well but perhaps you know you can't say it because that would be problematic or toxic or not wanting to engage with your privilege or 
one one of one of these terms but things like google is your friend you know that was i was like that is terrible advice like when i take that advice to try and learn more about anti-racism and i just don't know where to start and i'm just googling these random terms i'm being presented with things that are you know actually quite unhelpful i don't want that to be where people who want to work together and contribute to to this movement i don't want that to be i don't want whatever random shit they happen to find on like via google to be kind of their their blueprint and then other things like oh we're gonna have to get uncomfortable that you hear all the time and i'm like why does this change actually you know why this is just this repeated um just this 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 phrase that people are repeating i'm like why can't um why can't personal and collective transformation actually be you know liberating and exciting and like what why just uncomfortable that's also really unappealing you know unless you're trying to uh kind of do penance or you're somebody that is kind of aroused by some sort of kind of like saviorism you know why does it have to be so uncomfortable? It should be exciting to learn how so many things you've been taught are actually, you know, are, I, I don't, to me, this, it's, 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 it's inspiring, but yeah. So there's, I think there's a lot of stock phrases that I find really frustrating and unproductive. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left. So I'm just gonna ask one more, which I think is a good, rounding us off question and it's from Isabel and if you're wondering why I never said anyone else's name it's because only Isabel has put her name in the name box um so thank you Isabel um and her question is I'm interested to know what uh, Sean and Emma think are success factors for effective coalition building and maybe I can encourage you this is me talking now to uh like reach back into those historical examples again so I missed the question because I was reading the other questions. <laughs> I got distracted. Oh, sorry. Uh, what are success factors? What do you think are success factors in effective coalition building? Um, please, please keep it to thirty seconds. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think like. I mean, I I'm tempted to think of Northern Ireland and the kind of peace process there. You have to recognise that like effective coalitions take, you know, they take time to build. It's really about time, um, yeah, willingness. Um, and yeah, they don't have, they don't happen overnight. They, they don't have the dopamine rush of, <laughs> <laughs> of like, you know, this sort of stuff. It's, it's years work and it's about yeah. progressive and it's incremental and it's slow. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Um, that we're facing with we're discussing it in these quite like you know off-handed way for an hour-long panel but these things take decades um and they're revisited as well i think you know a lot of coalitions as i say about the lgbt coalition for example is that i think that one has renewed itself in many different time you know contexts and times and will need to again um for example in Europe where there's ultra right wing conservative attacks on LGBT rights, there'll be a, a resurgence of that as a political coalition rather than a consumer bracket. I'll finish there. I think there's um, quite a few examples that are that were so um, threatening to the status quo that the um, that the threat was neutralized, you know, so if you think about like Martin Luther King. Um, just before he was assassinated, before he was killed, um, he was working on a poor people's campaign, which was to bring all working and poor people um, in the United States together into a into a mass into a mass movement. You know, um, similarly with Fred Hampton, that Rainbow Coalition, which had the potential to bring on board, you know, um, working and oppressed and minoritized people throughout um throughout the states potentially throughout the world again he was like he did he didn't he didn't get to see that through but um yeah i think these ideas as sean said are 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 revisited but i think it's really important that our um our organizing and our thinking and our discourse isn't untethered from these 
from these historical that, that, that we have a familiarity with the history which is what I felt very frustrated by with so much of the kind of liberal mainstream anti-racist discourse that it, it seemed untethered from kind of this historical context um well thank you both and especially for that heroic effort of keeping to time at the end um that hour flew by and I'm really sorry that we didn't get to ask all of your questions because they were all really really good um, some of them were so challenging that I didn't put them to the panel because I thought, oh God, I'm not sure that's really hard. <laughs> um, but that just shows how like, rigorous all of your thoughts were. So thank you so much. Um, and I guess I'm handing over back over to Daisy now. Um, thanks so much to Sean and Emma. I'm sure that Daisy will remind you about where to buy the books, uh, which you should. I've read them both. I read them both in one sitting, actually, and they're great. Ellie, thank you so much. What a fantastic interview and what a hopeful and engaging discussion. So yes, please buy the books, The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay and What White People Can Do Next by Emma Dabbery are both out now. And I know that New and Books would be delighted to help and the details are in the chat. We will share them again tomorrow as well, along with a recording of the session. We need new stories to unite disparate areas and different groups. And I think these two authors are really paving the way and it's been such an honor to hear from you both, um, all three of you this evening. So thank you very, very much. But now that's all we've got time for. So for this evening, good night and thank you. <laughs>